Good day, America, and hello, world. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace here, firmly in the midst of the Depression. And we're speaking today with a branding, marketing, and innovation consultancy based in New York, Tipping Sprung by name. Martin Tipping, Robert Sprung, Paul Gardner, principals in the firm. They work with brands like Johnson & Johnson, GE, Procter & Gamble, Kraft, and help them solve complex marketing and branding problems. The McLaughlin Company has worked at great length uh, with Tipping Sprung. And on here, as we go through the economy and talk to various facets of it and learn the impact of the economy on, of the downturn, of the depression on individual businesses. We're all affected, but affected in different ways. Geography plays a part. Important to note that this is in New York, which is the epicenter of the depression for a variety of reasons. And I'm going to turn the discussion over uh, to Martin uh, Tipping to introduce himself and his colleagues quickly, and then we will get into the issue du jour, which is all about branding and marketing and innovation. Important that innovation is a positive spin here in the midst of this economy. Martin, welcome aboard. Thank you, Paul. I, I'm pleased to be a, hopefully a, a ray of light and brightness in the epicenter of depression here in New York. Uh, I'm here with Robert Sprung. Hey there, Martin and Paul. Good to be here. And Paul Gardner. Hello, everyone. Martin Tipping and Robert Sprung are co-founders of Tipping Sprung. Paul Gardner is the creative director. And before we get any further, I want to introduce a new sponsor of McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace. Delighted to have on board Classroom24-7.com, which is a leader in the field of e-learning online learning, training, and certification. Let me spell that out for you so you can look them up on the web. Classroom, C-L-A-S-S-R-O-O-M-24-7.com. Classroom24.7 provides innovative, on-demand, distributed education solutions designed specifically for institutions of higher learning continuing education and certificate testing. They have an extraordinarily rich media-based format that blends time-honored strengths of the traditional classroom with the power of web-based learning. New company that's in the business, not that new, but expanding its presence, building its reach so that it can reach you. And it uh, has state-of-the-art Studios, where you can record your online video presentation, aids institutions exactly in e-learning. It is a platform for that. And I'm delighted to have classroom24-7.com be a sponsor of McLaughlin at Work right in our wheelhouse where we deal with audio and still here on webtalkradio.net and with a private product, Listen In, that allows executive communication on individual websites, 24-7 does the same in the field of e-learning. So uh, if you are an institution that is looking for studios, opportunities, platforms, and the ability to have certification of that, Certification testing, Classroom 24-7 may be just exactly down your alley. Take it from me, Paul McLaughlin. McLaughlin at work, your audio guide to the workplace. This is a new way. This is the new wave. 24-7 has something to offer to you. And now we continue with our discussion. going to turn to uh, Martin Tipping of Tipping Sprung all about branding and innovation. Why don't you take us back to maybe uh, the end of uh, 2007 when we were entering 2008 and the world began to come apart even though we didn't know it. What was the mood, the attitude, and the um, influence that you, a brand, 
branding firm like yours had on the economy and particularly with your clients? Um, I think the mood was still um, cautiously optimistic um, back at the beginning of 2008. Um, there isn't the same sort of um, fear and paralysis that we see in the market today. Uh, and that's why I think is, is, is one of the key um, differences. Uh, there was still a um, focus on innovation at a lot of firms. And, uh, you know, there were a, a lot more financial services companies out there talking about branding, uh, for at least for Tipping Sprung. Right. And, and to remind people briefly of the history, in the end of 2007, we were just beginning to hear the tremors about Bear Stearns, who would disappear in the... Uh, the, the banging of the pipes only indicates that heat's still coming into the building. So that's not a bad thing. Uh, no, it's fine. Um, so the, the, uh, a year ago or in the beginning of 2008, Bear Stearns was still with us. There was a certain, maybe the first recognition that the government was going to do something about the problem, at least in the financial services world, that would be the first of the resolutions. And we know that that hasn't played out. But specifically in the commercial brands with whom you operate uh, most effectively. Uh, what, what's the biggest change between then and now? Um, I think one of the, the biggest changes, again, what people are focusing on now and looking for much, much more strongly right now is what's the return on investment on uh, any of the marketing or branding initiatives that they are considering embarking on. And if they're unable to make a clear case for return on investment, then these initiatives are just not happening. And that's something that uh, is challenging in the marketing and branding arena because it's often very difficult to make a clear and compelling case um, for ROI, uh, at least a case that is clear and compelling enough for um, a beleaguered, embattled CFO. So it's not necessarily... Um Clearly, it's not business as usual, but ROI in some measure is a smokescreen for people who don't want to spend money. It, it, exactly. And I think what people are looking, I mean, people are right now scrambling to climb on board the, the social media bandwagon. I think people are looking for a, um, a silver bullet uh, right now. And the downturn in spending on marketing in general has coincided with the upswing um, and uh, sort of boom in social media. And I think a lot of marketers right now are looking at social media as if it's this silver bullet that's just going to solve all of their problems. And I think that's something that we see a lot more now is, uh, is clients looking and saying, well, where's the social media component of this program? How is social media going to solve everything? And the reality is it's not going to solve let everything. Me, let me stop you there <coughs> because I think it means different things to different people. What is social media as a succinct definition, and then how do you enlarge on it? Um, it's so, social media is basically um, any sort of online media that empowers people to participate um, in an open conversation and build a community. So there are lots of different type of, types of social media, and it's not that it's anything new. It's just that the technology has advanced to such a stage that uh, that it's now much more pervasive. You know, years ago people were calling this user-generated content. Uh, when people could write product reviews on Amazon, that was one of the earliest forms of social media. But blogs and podcasts and wikis and content communities like Flickr and YouTube are all examples of social media that marketers are figuring out how to uh, how to work with right now. Social media is in in some way a short term for interactive. Or has become that. I always have. I never know whether YouTube is social media, whether Facebook is social media, whether somebody who writes an endless blog of drivel is social media. Yeah, it's it's all of the above. Um, it's. I mean, interactive was basically. You know, interactive was used to to define anything that was. You know, where you typed in a URL and you got something back. That was interactive. So interactive as a term. Um, goes back a, uh, a, a, a long, long way. Um, we prefer to think of it not just as interactive, but as digital, because for us, social media, the use of blogs, the use of communities like YouTube and Flickr has to be integrated with what you're doing on your website and what you're doing in uh, mobile media, for example, as well. Uh, maybe we can uh, turn uh, uh, some comments over here to both uh, Robert Sprung and Paul Gardner, but uh, th I've heard it, and I'm looking for some definitions here to set the tone. I've heard 
various descriptions of Web 1 and Web 2, and, and maybe we're entering uh, Web 3. To in, when we talk about web-based, we talk about something being digital, we talk about social media, we talk about interactive. In the development of the web, the, uh, the World Wide Web, what stage have we left, what stage are we in, and what stage are we going into? Who's got the answer to that? Paul? I think we're on hold at Web 1.5. I think there have been, you know, people are just getting familiar, particularly big companies, familiar with Web 1.0. And, I think and how would you describe Web 1.0? You're basic. You're, you're, we've got a website. We have an online presence. We kind of know what to do with it. But there are dangerous things like, you know, some components of social media, like Twitter, for example. I mean, it's great, but... It is like um, you have to be more careful about your messaging and more careful about what you say. It's in many ways like um, shouting out something inappropriate in a very crowded, very, very crowded, quiet room. You have to be careful with what you say on it and the message that's getting out there. As you are, um, uh, as you are a professional firm, uh, what of these, there are commercial applications and then social social media applications, this being discussions about the workplace, uh, how does social media blend into the use of the web by corporations? I think it's, a, it's certainly a, a very cost-effective way of getting your message out. Um, I would hate to be a printer in this economy. Um, certainly the, the, the online environment allows you to tailor your messages as the as those changes in the economy and changes in the way that we're living. I think um, online presence allows you to tailor your message and get it out there um, with with changes as you as you need it. It used to be that messaging, uh, a company's messaging was controlled in a sort of very command and control center. There was a marketing group that had control of and controlled the timing and the content of all of the messages. What social media has done by definition is sort of socialized or democratized the delivery of messages. So now any employee of your company can be out there talking about the company, whether they're authorized or unauthorized, um, and that content that they're putting out there talking about the company is visible to thousands, millions um, of people. Uh, so, on a how it imp impacts the workplaces, I think you know there are there are um, definitely issues around employees using social media at work in an unauthorized way, but from an unauthorized point of view, how do you um, use social media as a different communications channel, um, a different line of, um, it's essentially a different channel, just like print or like TV or mm -hmm. like radio. And a lot of companies have yet to figure out a strategy for how to do that. And what happens is, you know, the, the Twittering or the blogging gets pushed out to the youngest uh, person who right. feels the most tech savvy and the most comfortable with it, that isn't necessarily the best um, spokesperson for the company um, or for the brand. So it's, it is challenging. I think companies are, are, are trying to figure this out. Just as when you know Web 1.0 started to arrive on the scene, everybody scrambled to get on the web, but very few people took the time to really think and... Uh, and to take advantage and, of it. Well, it, there, there was a sense of, you know, we just had to be up there. Right. And anybody who was not up there straight away was felt to be, um, you know, s you know, s slow to the, you know, slow to take advantage of the web. They were going to be the losers. But actually, there's an advantage sometimes in sitting back and looking and seeing what the true potential of the technology is and how the technology is going to um, shake out mm -hmm. and how best to use it. And I think that's what we're going to see with social media as well. Um, something like seventy percent of the blogs that are up there basically have zero value. Um, right. And people are not reading them. They're not paying attention to them, um, and they're not paying for them. And they're not pa and they're not paying for them. So it's it's just noise. Mm -hmm. So ha what what social media has done, as well as sort of this democratizing, giving a voice to consumers, it's also just made a whole lot more noise and a whole lot more content um, that you, 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 noise you have to cut through and content you have to create. Um, as a brand. So, uh, so the, the commercial applications, when you talk about branding and identity and, uh, and innovation, 
on the corporate scale because there's so much aggressive chatter in a variety of ways out there in social media for people who are trying to get a particular commercial, if you will, out, it just makes it that much more difficult. Well, I think that, that that's one of the mistakes is trying to get a commercial out. It's when I say it, it's a different channel. Um, it's, it goes beyond just a different um, way of delivering a message. Um, it also goes to the content of that message itself, just as a TV ad wouldn't necessarily play well on the radio uh, because the content has to be tailored to that particular audience in the particular media. The content um, and the messaging needs to be tailored to social media as well. So social media is not particularly um, well suited to pushing, you know, messages that appear sort of to be corporate, um, you know, pushing press releases or pushing, um, you know, online ads, that sort of thing. Um, it's much more a, a, a one-to-one um, communication, needs to feel more intimate um, and needs to feel, I think, um, needs, needs, needs to feel that, it's, that, that, that you have something to say. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to draw a distinction here because <coughs> we're in the midst of an economic meltdown uh, we're in the midst of a depression, but that depression has not hit social networking at all. So what I'm really looking for here from you three gentlemen and, and Tipping Sprung in general is sort of an, an insight into the business, uh, the commercial business, the corporate business of branding and, uh, and holding on to and moving people's brands. I mean, the reality is that the world hasn't stopped at all. The market may have gone from 14,000 to uh, wherever it is now, somewhere in the low 6,000s. But uh, people are doing more on the web with uh, than ever. But that hasn't done anything for the economy. Uh, Paul? Um, I think the, uh, like in any emergency, any crisis, I think the best course of action for brands is to is to stay calm, weigh up your options. And I think, um, I know that's easier said than done, but in those situations, I think people are looking for leadership and stability. With the kind of uncertainty that we see around us being that rock of consistency, I think will go a long way to retaining customers' confidence and hopefully share of pocket. I think far from familiarity breeding contempt, as, as they say before, I think in these situations it breeds confidence. Um, I think brands should take this time to consolidate their identity verbally, visually, keep it simple. If you're a global brand, it's even more important. Chances are the, the course you were on prior to the downturn was probably in the, in the, in the right area, probably the true course. But um, I think with everything, you need some course corrections. There's been some crazy examples out there recently. I think if you, much has been said about the, the Tropicana repackaging and right. rebranding. Re I noticed that. Yeah, well, it's it's gone. Um, I mean, is it on it almost looked like uh, what was the the Coke they, they, the Coca Cola product that they came out with? What? Yeah, the Coke yeah. Classic. I mean, they got uh, they got hammered on that Tropicana. Well, how, how did that happen? You guys didn't design that box. No, no, no. Okay, just want to make sure I want to put that. No, on I there. think people can do a search online and find out who did it. <laughs> but um, I think um, I think on paper the idea probably seems sound to appear like a generic store brand and seemed like a value brand was a good idea, but I think the complaints they got from the customers because they couldn't find it um, or it was different um, caused them to go back, I think, three months after the launch and go back to the old packaging. It, you know, God knows what that cost was to, to Pepsi, I think. Right. Uh, take, give the advantage of not being there when it happened. How do mistakes like that happen? I mean, there are a lot of people, obviously, it's a little bit like the financial meltdown. You look back and say, hey, a lot of great brains who have been there for a long time. How do mistakes like that happen in the branding world? I, don't, I, would, I would guess, and you know, like you say, I, I wasn't there, but it, it would seem that there wasn't a lot of research done before they did it. Um, mm -hmm. Some comments I'd read was that you know, they, they got rid of a lot of the, the, I guess, the comfort elements of Tropicana, the orange with the straw, and the things that people just went to for I mean, orange they didn't think comfort about. food. And I think they just they just went too far. Maybe you know, we'll look back years from now, and it might seem like a great idea, but I think it just it just eroded customer confidence. Martin, I I agree with Paul that uh, a sound research uh, program would probably have told you um, that this packaging was not going to be well received um, by by consumers. Uh, I think 
two things to 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 add to that one is uh to go back to social media without the chorus of blogs and the chorus of uh media that's out there it's likely that you know two years ago as we started talking about before two years ago the packaging would probably have stayed around certainly a lot longer it would have taken a lot longer um to course correct coke classic was around much longer time um, than Tropicana's new package was. But because social media gives so many people a voice right. and makes that voice visible, right. um, it becomes much harder um, to... Um, it's pretty obvious when you make a mistake. I- exactly. People, they, the people are going to tell you, yeah. and, and, uh, and they're going to tell you, and they're going to tell other people, and it's going to spread. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the old adage that there's no such thing as bad publicity um, doesn't hold true anymore. Um, I think as well, just timing is bad, as Paul says. In in this sort of economy, people want, um, you know, people want familiarity, um, and they w- don't want to um, see things that, uh, that 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 rock the boat too much. Now, w- when we talk about familiarity, it's important to point out that you know there are some industries that um, are are course correcting and that are making changes. Um, but they're doing so in a way that is smart because they are listening to customers. So, for example, you know what JetBlue and Hyundai are doing, essentially offering a form of unemployment insurance when you purchase one of their cars or one right. of their flights, um, is a great way of responding to the situation. And we're not, they're recognizing that it's not business as usual. It's not business as usual for consumers, um, so it shouldn't be business as usual for them. And I think by doing that, by saying, look, we know you're hurting and we're going to do everything we can to help you and be there for you, um, those are the brands that are, gonna, that are going to attract a much more loyal following. They're going to build new um, customers and they're going to build much deeper relationships with the existing customers they have. But none of these brands are going, you know, JetBlue and Hyundai are building on a solid core. And what Tropicana did was basically throw away that, that core um, that, as, as Paul said, the um, the equity that was in the the, the orange and the straw, um, and it was just huge. And you can't just throw that away at this time. You can't jettison things that are working. Another one I think is making a a great ex- example, or, or rather to say that um, Pepsi is another brand, oddly enough, who own Tropicana, who've gone through their own rebranding exercise. Um, again, that's caused a lot of. Um, difference of opinion, shall we say. But what I find fascinating is, rather than change, Coca-Cola have gone on back to their, their basics, and particularly in the recent commercials, it's just all about being refreshing. It's just, it's just keep it simple and, and keep the customers you have. Speaking with uh, Robert Sprung, Martin Tipping, and Paul Garden of the firm, Tipping Sprung, a branding and identity firm here in New York. All, all of us are fighting the issue of, uh, of innovation. We're talking a little bit about what happens to uh, brands. Uh, and let me just ask this in a general question uh, directed perhaps to Robert to hear his voice in the conversation. Um, when On the one hand, you hear various things about brands per se. On the other hand, you hear that Walmart is doing well in which a lot of these brands appear, some of the brands are do- doing more poorly than their brands are doing in Walmart. How do you explain that? Well, it depends on your value proposition in this uh, market. I think we have to make the distinction given by, or illustrated by the Tropicana example between branding and advertising or packaging and other types of promotional activities. Uh, the brand, as we like to look at it, is the DNA of the organization. That's hopefully something that doesn't change from season to season uh, as the advertising or the packaging. So I think the mistake that was made there is there's potentially a confusion between the two. The brand is not something that you monkey with uh, glibly. Uh, I think the better illustration maybe than Walmart is the illustration of household brands such as Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson in this market. And those are household names. Those are iconic brands. And people are wary in this market with so much pressure on their pocketbook to buy the, you know, the Charmin or the uh, Tide laundry detergent when they could basically spend half as much and buy a store brand. As a result, a lot of these store brands, so-called store brands, are undergoing their own uh, blossoming of branding 
uh, and that's something, I guess that's one of the great success stories in this really bleak marketplace. Uh, maybe Mark and Martin could talk a little bit about some of the opportunities and developments there. It's interesting that we talk about Walmart and uh, in the context of rebranding because Walmart uh, is in the middle itself of one of the, the, the biggest rebranding exercises. Um, and as part of that, I know they're looking at their um, great value uh, private label, uh, which will they will be investing millions of dollars in creating new packaging um, for all of those brands. So to Robert's point, uh, Walmart and other retailers are realizing the value um, of creating um, private label brands. And it's very hard right now to distinguish between a private label brand um, and a... Uh, a, uh, a, 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 a a national brand and what's the movement has typically been you know w or what we've seen over the past years is the store brands working hard to take themselves to the level of the national brands and I guess that was what was partly so shocking um, about the uh, Tropicana affair was that um, for the first time a brand sort of the national brand started to lower the bar down to the private label level um, as opposed to trying to differentiate itself it wanted to sort of get lost um, in that array of private label brands and uh, unfortunately they got consumers lost as well and that just didn't fly let me ask you one of those economic questions that I've always I never know the answer to but take something like Tropicana um, how much of the value of, of a canister is, uh, is in the brand versus um, just the juice that's in it? I mean, it seems like clearly people stop buying it, but there is, in brand value, there is an inflated price. I shouldn't say inflated. There's a price because you want to buy the brand that has a higher value than the good itself. This seems to have taken, by taking that, we had John Gersma on uh, a few months ago talking about the brand bubble and how the value of brands has disintegrated on the, uh, on the balance sheet in some, in some cases. Good brands, Apple, Nike, continue to grow, but others disappear. Is, is there something about um, in the economics of this whole thing that when brand value disappears that, that goods will become less expensive? Well, I think the simplest answer, Paul, to your question is just look at the quarterly reports from Walmart and Procter and & Gamble, and I think that tells the story right there. Uh, especially when you take a look at a lot of the big consumer products whose ingredients per the FDA are mandated to be public. So if you look at, or Johnson & Johnson baby powder, where essentially the active ingredient between the generic and the uh, branded product are common knowledge. So in those cases, it's pretty easy to quantify what's the premium paid by the consumer for that brand. But I think the clear story is told in the you know, the downward development in earnings per share of Procter & Gamble and the upward development in Walmart. And hopefully the market will reach an equilibrium on that uh, sooner rather than later. So the, in the minds of the public, therefore, they have they're buying the brand Walmart because they know when they walk in the door they're going to get the best possible price as opposed to a brand of a particular item which they may not be able, they don't have any certainty that they're getting the best price. Well, there's been a radical transformation in the marketplace, whereas the what sold at Walmart used to be in the purview of dollar stores and great discounters where people thought they were getting an inferior quality. I think there's a greater confidence that companies like Walmart are in fact able to source the best product at the best price around the world. Now, obviously that's different from a buying a light bulb or baby powder versus buying something that's more complex and certainly something that's a luxury good or something with greater cachet to it. I think it's also important to point out that private label offerings have got much more sophisticated. So I think consumers are certainly making a decision to shop at Walmart um, more, more often than they would previously. Um, you know, the, 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 fi the sales figures clearly support that. But once they're in Walmart, they still have a choice. And the choice is not just between private label and national brand. The choice is often between differing levels of private label. Um, a lot of uh, retailers have a premium private label. They may have a licensed private label. And they may have a value private label as well. So the range of choices um, within, the, um, you know, w within the consumer's arena is not just simply private label or national brand. Another development that I think is really interesting, Paul, is the application of seals of approval, uh, licensed seals of approval on product. Uh, we happen to represent the American Lung Association, uh, and there are programs such as the American Lung Association, the American Red Cross, uh, and similar nonprofit brands where these 
uh, seals of approval are essentially are, are used on product, many of them private label, to add that extra cachet. So a lot of private label brands are finding that the economics are particularly attractive to invoke the halo effect of a brand like that as opposed as an alternative to the consumer of going with the quote-unquote premium brand of a, for example, Procter & Gamble. But I think it's important to note in that case that cachet may have a, ten, I wouldn't say a shallowness to it, but the reason that there are, uh, the, the companies want this is there's a degree of good housekeeping seal of approval that there is, in fact, on the part of Cheerios for the Heart Association or Fresh Air products in the case of American Lung, that there is a scrutiny that allows those kinds of organizations to put their name on products. Absolutely. Uh, Paul McLaughlin with Martin Tipping, Robert Sprung, Paul Gardner, firm of Tipping Sprung in New York, in all talking about branding and identity um, here in early in 2009. And it, it leads to a number of questions about the, uh, about the future before we get too mired down in the present. But let me ask you, uh, and I'm going to start with perhaps with Paul because it's more of the creative side, uh, if you will. When you talk about uh, the impact on consumers and brands, talk about some of the things that, uh, that people think about in terms of you know, colors, in terms of vibrancy, in terms of what are you trying to sell? Are you trying to, in your opinion, are you trying to raise, is it, is it aspirational for the cu customer or is it comfort level? And how, as you look into branding and identifying corporate, your corporate clients over the next three months, but clearly as you know, looking at the Christmas season, God help us, 2009, what are the changes that you, that you are seeing that your focus groups and your gut and the economy and your corporate clients, what are they looking for? What's going to be different going into the course of 2009? Um, I hope there isn't too much going different. I think the the, the notion of, of trying to change what you look like um, is a dangerous road to take just now. I think it's more about building on what you have, what you've built. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't get Coca Cola changing to orange from red to orange. You 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 want to you want to keep that familiarity. Um, you want to build on the consistency you have. I think with brands, we do a lot of you know building of image palettes, for example. I, I think um, the the moody. Come back to that building of image palettes. What are yeah, those? Yes, a lot a lot of companies have. Um, uh, a, a group of shots that they use, photography, imagery they use in the communications. Um, you try and get as proprietary as you can as you go through the process of, of building that image palette for a brand. I think gone will be the, the kind of the moody, sad shots. I think the brands will be trying to look a little bit more uplifting, a little bit more like they they do make a difference in in the consumer's life. So that can be done through through color, through image, through through communications, through just uh, certain feel good quality. And the medium, um, the medium as expressing that, uh, I've I've seen a lot of. When you look at the numbers, clearly the, there, there's uh, be be uh, to be direct and extreme. There's no money in the internet. So the people, it's just tough to find where it is, where it goes. Television still consumes an awful lot of advertising dollars, et cetera. Is there going to be, uh, the tide is clearly changing, but even looking at, um, I think I saw the numbers for, for uh, CNN, and it's going to be a long time before CNN ever turns, quote, a profit from its, um, from its exercises. I'm just curious when you get into, again, the commercial side of this, the outlets, I don't understand where it all ends if people are zapping through ads on television, yet that's where the money's going. It doesn't see, a lot of the world doesn't make a lot of sense to me, Paul McLaughlin here, and I, and I turn to experts to say, you know, make it, make it real. Yes, take a deep breath, Paul, I'll make sense of it for you. Um, <laughs> I was slipping into depression there for a minute. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be another bright spot again. Yeah. Um, I, I think... Um, you know, when, when you say there's no money in, in the internet, it's true that companies are still, you know, struggling with, uh, with profitable business models on the internet. 
Um, there is definitely money in the internet from an advertising point of view right now. Um, the only growth area in ad spend is in the digital space, um, which includes internet and uh, mobile applications as well. Um, so companies are pouring a lot more money um, into communicating in that space. I mean, the, the main... The, the, to, even though the, the, the economy is in a depression, sort of good business practice doesn't change. And this is, I think, yeah, what we're trying to point. say, that, that, that people are panicking. And what it is is about reaching people with the right message, um, the right value proposition at the right time. And for a lot of people, the right way to reach them is through the Internet. But you have to have a message that's relevant to them. I think one of the most shameful um, things that is going on right now is... Uh, you know, you still see um, banks like uh, Citibank out there saying, give us $100 if you open an account and why don't you, you know, take out a new credit card with us. And that's an example of, you know, it's the wrong message at the wrong time and it may be targeted to the right person, but you really need to be tailoring your messages. It doesn't mean changing your, your, your identity. Um, it doesn't mean, you know, rushing to change your logo or redefining who you are. But you really need to understand your customer, your consumer. Um, more than ever, you need to empathize with them. And as I say, it's those brands that really are able to empathize with consumers that are going to emerge far stronger um, at the end of this. Yeah, I, I, I think you raise an excellent point. And not, not to beat on City, but I noticed that uh, Citibank, obviously, with its um, logo, is quite noticeable. The New York Times, I think, about a month ago or so, beginning of the year, decided to ad on occasion front page ads and I noticed one the other day as as uh, the inside pages the uh, problems with city were being reported on the outside pages it was an ad for city and it said the city never sleeps and I thought to myself yeah <laughs> for a lot of for a lot of reasons city stockholders aren't sleeping but it seemed to me that it, it sometimes the uh, a consumer looks at something like that and really questions the wisdom how did that how did a, an ad like that ever happen? I'm not expecting anybody to answer it, but it's just an observation in the press that these things do happen, uh, and you d it, it just makes you wonder. I think, to be fair, that's a, that's an old legacy Citibank ad that they're rerunning, maybe to save costs. But I think the the <clears throat> the challenge just now, and I think the, the 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 branding firms out there, the ones that will be there after this this downturn writes itself or those that have illustrated an ability for clients to to be creative within some very confined spaces and with some very confined budgets and try and find the best way to get a, a client message out there. Again, to go back to social media, they're out there talking about these things um, in blogs, in chat rooms, in wikis, in product reviews. And there are tools that we're using right now to mine these conversations. Um, so rather than using expensive focus groups or um, closed-ended online surveys, you can actually mine real-time conversations that are happening and that have historically happened to find out, um, you know, what are the concerns of, uh, of your customers out there? What are they talking about? What are they looking to their, the brands that they love um, to say to them and to deliver to them? And if you can mine those, uh, that data, and that's the challenge, there's just so much out there, having the tools to, to, to get at the, the, the real insights, the real actionable insights that, that are going to drive results. Conduct your own survey of something along those lines, Tipping Sprung along with uh, Brand Week? Yes, we conduct a, um, a brand extension survey. Yep, uh, we look at the top brand extensions. A brand extension is where you take your brand and put it on a new product in an effort to extend the brand and also get additional revenue which people are trying in this in these trying can uh, you give us a good example of a brand extension i guess the a classic example is a jeep uh vehicle putting its name onto a baby stroller uh i think most the cons we've gotten to the crazy point in our economy where people don't stop to think that uh, is jeep actually manufacturing this baby stroller um Anyway, uh, the market is just filled with these extensions. I mean, most people don't realize it today, but some of the most venerable brands, such as Westinghouse, no longer exist as operating companies, but are essentially licensing firms. So there are literally thousands of products on the market with a Westinghouse name on it that aren't, in fact, ma manufactured by the Westinghouse company. Paul? That's a bad example of a brand extension. There's some great ones out there. 
Well, uh, in an effort often to grab additional revenue, some companies make ill-advised moves uh, that don't feel like the right fit for their brand. Uh, I guess my favorite being Cheetos going into lip balm, uh, not a product that you'd <laughs> want to put on your lips. Uh, there's also precious moments that make figurines that now have gone into the business of putting their brand onto caskets. Uh, so you have all sorts of odd bedfellows uh, you know, a another one is the Hooters airline. Uh, Hooters <laughs> uh, Bar and Grill put their name on a, a line of commercial jets, which have since ceased uh, operation. But things which, in retrospect, seem particularly ill-advised. Uh, I had an idea of I, while we're chatting here about things companies can do in this uh, in these turbulent times in getting their branding house in order. Uh, there's something that we observed here, which is. A lot of global multinational companies have their brand guidelines in their brand book. And what this means is that's this is sort of the Bible by which companies promulgate their brand and their messages around the world. And as you say, the color and the imagery and the taglines and the words that they use to describe themselves. Uh, we happen to notice that in all this mad scramble to get out on the Internet and, and promote themselves, a lot of companies have overlooked the simple need to make sure that these instructions, these blueprint instructions for the brand are not available in local languages around the world. So uh, there's a huge opportunity here for uh, people to uh, communicate in the local language so that your office in China or Dubai or Saudi Arabia uh, is speaking the same language as your headquarters uh, here in the United States. So we think there's a huge opportunity there uh, for brands to emerge stronger in this economy with a more consistent global voice. I'm glad you brought that up because globalization is always globalization. Listen to me, whoever heard the word globalization now. But um, would you anticipate that there'll be a swing back, if not to protectionist, but that people are going to care less what's happening in Dubai? I mean, Dubai is is slipping away at uh, at uh, oil at, at 40 bucks, and people are saying maybe the Ukraine is going to end up going back to the back into Russia because uh, Germany is going to turn its back on it. Is there is the, this is the whole thing about the world is flat, and the and and, and I, I know it's a global concept, but but here in the midst of these things, it strikes me that there are a lot of these plate shifts that are really going to impact the way brands are developed, the way America is viewed, whether it is the the melting pot is every. Does everybody still? Are we still the city on the hill? Very interesting stuff going around, and I'd, uh, give us some thoughts about that. Well, the man in the street might not be interested so much if there's a backlash of protectionism about what's going on in Dubai, but certainly the shareholders of Coca-Cola, who include many millions of American citizens, uh, and, and, and Warren Buffett, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, anybody who uh, you know. You know their 401k, be it as it may, a lot of people are shareholders in companies like that. They ultimately care very much about the sales of these products around the world because that trend is not is sort of unstoppable. It's, I think most people will agree that the globalization genie can't be put back in the bottle, so to speak, while we're talking about Coca-Cola. So if that's the case, then people ultimately, again, we're sort of in the branding sphere, so we're, you know, this is sort of a bit of arcana that, you know, the average consumer might not be as aware of, even though they're consuming the product. Ultimately, they're consumed that that Coca-Cola that's on the shelf in Dubai is going to be the one that the consumer grabs and not the generic local, locally produced cola. And that premium that that consumer is paying is going to accrue to the shareholder in the United States. So people here are, are intimately uh, tied in to the profitability and the success of these global brands. So the consistency of the brand around the world and its uh, compelling value proposition, uh, that I don't think we can turn the, turn the tide on that. I see that Martin is looking for the, uh, for the microphone. Do you think the world is going to become more fractured? in the short term? Geopol geopolitics is not my strong suit. I mean, I think from a branding um, perspective, um, it's going to make things like localization um, and you know having culturally attuned guidelines um, far more important. I mean, one of the things that I've observed um, in global branding programs, and that's global in air quotes, is that global branding programs far too often uh, you know, as long as it works in the U.S. and we've spoken to a few people outside of the U.S., um, then, you know, we're going to, the U.S. is the biggest market, it's the strongest market, so if it works in the U.S., that's going to be our global strategy and that's going to be our global brand. Um, I, I think one of the things that, uh, that, that the, you know, the, the whole global um, 
downturn means is that um, you know being attuned to cultural sensitivities um, is going to be more important than ever um, to be in tune. Uh, it all goes back to the same uh, same theme that we were talking about before: empathizing and understanding your audiences. I mean, ultimately, I agree with Robert that brands you know transcend political boundaries. It doesn't matter whether Ukraine ends up um, as part of uh, Russia or uh, or um, you know, remains independent. I mean, don't quote me; it's, it doesn't matter. It obviously matters to a lot of people. Um, but from you know, from the point of view of people aspiring to brands like you know, it was MTV and Coke and McDonald's that brought down the Berlin Wall, and people are still going to aspire um, to, to 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 have these brands once they've got used to them. Um, they will want to um, continue continue their presence in their lives. Uh, Paul, the other thing to keep in mind here is that we're not just talking about multiculturalism outside the borders of the United States. Uh, the United States is no longer the homogeneous you know, ethnic community that it was 100 years ago. So any smart brand must be marketing to its, again in air quotes, ethnic you know, constituencies in whether it be in Miami, Los Angeles, Dallas, or Boston. So uh, if people are coming or, or come from a Hispanic or Asian, Southeast Asian or Latin American, you know, uh, background, uh, is the brand speaking to them in a, lang in a language that's going to maximize the impact of that brand and build, share again, ultimately shareholder value over time? Paul? I was going to say, I mean, I, I agree with Martin on, on the... Uh, the global brands, and there's been several of them that I've worked on, um, there is a challenge of getting engagement from the geographies um, with a US-based company. Um, and I think you know, the, 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 big, the big region where that's especially true is, is China. And very few companies really take them into consideration when they develop the guidelines, when they develop the messaging even. And I think there's a huge opportunity for, for global brands. So on some of these things, I'm not exactly sure where, um, whether, and, and I'll put it as a question, are we really, are we really looking to, if, if, if the current situation is going to last through the remainder, the artifice of 2009, what's the new world order going to uh, look like? What's sort of the pie in the sky? What, what's the futuristic view? Take a put a stake way out in the sand. What do you think is going to change the most, Martin? I, I think the I think we're going to see the the disappearance um, of more um, much loved brand names. Unfortunately, between now and the end of the year, um, at least in the current format that they're in. I mean, one of the things um, to you we were talking about sort of enduring the enduring value of a brand um, you should never underestimate the value of just a strong brand name I mean the linens and things for example that went um, into bankruptcy and uh, the stores and s stock were liquidated that brand name was purchased for a million dollars and uh, very shortly linens and things will be back online but this time as a um, as an online only store basically selling the same sorts of things that they were selling um, before the stores themselves went bankrupt so I think there are going to be changes um, to a, um, a a lot of brands. I think um, a lot of brands are going to get burned um, by social media. Um, I think the sort of um, when you say burned, mean that the the response to them is much more immediate, much more telling, and they'll be out on a limb with a lot of goods that won't move? No, I, I mean they're going to pour a lot of money into um, into social media because they're sort of, you know, it's the sort of, it's, oh, isn't it shiny, isn't it glittery? We must be doing that because everybody's saying that, that they're doing it. Um, the, there's a, a great quote by... Um, by Avinash um, Kaushik, who is uh, the analytics evangelist for, for Google. He said, you know, social media is like teen sex. Everyone wants to do it. No one actually knows how. And when finally done, the surprise, it's not better. And that's basically the situation. Everybody wants to, to uh, everyone wants to be embracing social media, but nobody has, uh, a lot of people are going to get burned. They're going to put an awful lot of money into it with false expectations, and they're not going to see any real return um, for that investment. So I think social media will become um, much more integrated into um, into companies' other uh, communications initiatives. So it's going to become just another component of a digital strategy, of a PR strategy, and of a customer service strategy. Robert Sprung. 
I think private label is going to be one of the interesting things to keep one's eye on uh, between now and the next uh, 12 months. Uh, conventional wisdom has said that it takes hundreds of millions of dollars to create a brand, and that's sort of the traditional way of doing things. What we have now is a behemoth, uh, a juggernaut of Walmart that now accounts for something like 20% of all grocery sales in the United States, essentially creating out of thin air new brands and having uh, creating overnight hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of sales. Uh, so I think it's going to be an interesting uh, experiment in a very controlled environment as to whether these brands can have lasting uh, uh, staying power uh, or if they're going to be more ethereal. Try and keep it real here. On yes, the life is so ethereal. Um, yeah. I think the, the to go back to the question that the, the strong brands we'll see coming out of this are those that really do master their their digital presence. And I don't mean the website. I mean, that's part of it, sure. But the other stuff, I mean, um, I think you know, you've got brands like Toys R Us who paid $5 million for the URL toys. They're clearly going to be pushing there. I think why, why advertise on Fox when you can have your own channel on YouTube? Um, you've got pages on Facebook, you've got Twitter, you've got all manner of different ways of getting your message across. Um, and we touched on it earlier of, of how to manage um, those different vehicles, those different mediums, but I think the brands that, that come out of this strong are going to be the ones that, ones that have sorted out and, and really pushed their, their digital presence. So brands are going to be more important or less important? I, I think they're going to... I think certain brands are going to become more important to certain consumers. Where's the, where's the spark? Where's the creativity? Where's the innovation? We're talking about things that are going away. Where's yeah. spring? Yeah, I, I didn't actually mean that brands are going away. What I, what I mean is that this is an opportunity for smart, agile brands to really develop and strengthen the relationships that they have with existing um, their existing customers, um, to become, make them become much more loyal, turn them into evangelists for those brands. And that's what I meant by certain brands will become, um, are going to become um, much stronger for, for certain, um, certain customers. Um, if you, so the, the innovation and the agility um, and the, the, the spark of um, renewal is going to come from brands who are not just throwing away the old and saying we have to change and you know change for change's sake. It's going to come from brands, as I say, who um, really listen to their customers, understand their pain points, respond to them, maintain a dialogue with them, keep delivering what these customers want in an honest, transparent, creative, exciting way, and don't just freeze their marketing budgets and behave like deers caught in the headlights, which is what uh, we've seen certainly in the beginning of this year. Do you anticipate that this kind of brand building will be done within the corporate structure or more relying on people like Tipping Sprung to provide the creativity and innovation? Well, I think the brand is the, I mean, the brand exists within the, the, the corporate structure. So, you know, I, I liken the job of what, a, what Tipping Sprung does is sort of go in and, uh, you know, and sort of peel back the layers of the onion to, and then actually reveal the heart, um, the, the, the heart of the brand. So the brand can never be truly outsourced because it's going to rely on the people inside the organization who will have to live and breathe that brand um, on a daily basis and deliver it. Um, across all of their communications. I think, I think um, a lot of companies are going to need um, a lot of help um, from branding firms like Tipping Sprung um, as they move forward. I think um, one of the, I guess, if there's any, anything positive in this downturn is that a lot of the fluff round about branding's going away, disappearing. And what we're finding is people will come to companies like us looking for that creativity in a in a tight market in a in a tight space and look to to people like us to to as martin says peel away those layers and really get to the heart of the matter and do what we do best solve the problem paul i, I guess 
we shouldn't also lose sight of the fact, as you're searching for some ray of hope in this otherwise uh, rather dismal environment, that there's a broad spectrum of brands out there. And there's a couple that are obviously very beleaguered in this environment. So any financial services firm, uh, given the debacle in the mortgage and financial services industry, the automotive industry, certainly luxury goods in this kind of market, uh, these guys are going to have a much uh, tougher row to hoe than a company that makes uh, laundry detergent, let's say. So I think there the decimation is probably going to be a lot more marked and the challenge, the bar is much higher for these guys to meet in terms of uh, coming up with a new differentiation and a new paradigm because we're not going to come back. I think the big question is what is the new normal? Uh, so as, as we all know, in a cycle like this, it may take us at least a half dozen years to sort of quote unquote get back into the swing of where we were before. Uh, looking at uh, earlier in the century, the prior century, it might be as long as eight to ten years. So these, these brands are going to have to redefine themselves uh, pretty dramatically in order to meet that quote-unquote new normal. Yeah, I think uh, as, as you were speaking there, I was thinking about watching, the, for instance, the stock price of Apple, which has, um, uh, well, has suffered along with others, not nearly as much as a Citibank city, which is uh, trading now for, for under a dollar. As we close here, McLaughlin at Work, a delightful conversation with Martin Tipping, Robert Sprung, Paul Gardner of the firm Tipping Sprung branding and, and identity. Do you think we have to go through a little bit more before this thing turns around? And, and what do you look like, what do you three look for uh, as what needs to change to drive more positive thought? We've got the wood boards on the windows here and we're, <laughs> we're gonna ride out the storm, but it's gonna get rougher before it gets better, I think is a prudent person's consensus. Yeah, we're tied to the missile like Slim Pickens and Dr. Strangelove. Martin, final thoughts? Is, is wisdom key? Do you learn anything from these times? For me, the, the, the principles of, uh, of sound branding um, re remain strong. I mean, it's, you know, I don't, don't want to be sort of saying, you know, the fundamentals of our economy remain strong. Um, but the fundamentals of, of branding remain strong. It's about having a, it's about creating a value proposition that resonates with your customers um, that meets their needs, that does so in a way that allows you to charge um, a premium over a generic commoditized offering and delivering messages in ways that, um, that engage uh, people and that, uh, that, 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 that build long-term relationships. That hasn't changed. It's just become um, a little bit harder to do that. And as Paul says, it's, uh, it really just cuts away a lot of the... Uh, a, a, a lot of the um, the, the fluff um, from um, fr from branding, um, and it really does get down to how do you build those relationships um, and protect those relationships um, at a time when they're under threat. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to having you back on McLaughlin at Work, the audio guide to the workplace. Here, looking at uh, branding and identifying opportunity for um, companies in this country and abroad. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So what did we learn? We learned that it's important to stick with your knitting. Don't change the carton too much. If people like you, they like you for what you are. Not in a morph to reflect perhaps the troubled times that we're in. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace. Thanks to my colleagues at uh, Tipping Sprung for their insights into an important part of getting the message out. Sponsor, today on McLaughlin at Work Classroom 24-7. You can contact them at classroom24-7.com. They are the leader in the field of e-learning and perhaps even more important, the in expectation and proof that that learning and training resulted in knowledge and uh, the certification process is something that Classroom 24-7 prides itself on and makes it easy for you as an organization that requires that certification to make sure that people are being certified correctly. That's Classroom 24-7, which provides innovative on-demand distributed education solutions designed specifically for institutions of higher learning, continuing education, and certificate testing. Be in touch with them. They have a rich 
media-based format that blends time-honored strengths in the traditional classroom lecture with the power of web-based learning. And we're all learning about web-based learning, what it can do, and how you can prove it in the certific certification process. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace. Next week, an important uh, switching gears almost entirely going around the world, China and India. The title of the discussion, uh, Getting China and India Right, Strategies for Leveraging the World's Fastest Growing Economies for Global Advantage. My guest, Anil Gupta, co-author, Hawang Wang. They are co-authors of The Quest for Global Dominance, second edition. And uh, Anil Gupta will be my guest next week here on McLaughlin at Work. Always a pleasure. Wouldn't be the same without you. Thanks for joining me next time, next week.